Good morning, church. If you were here, believe, and most scholars believe that Mark ends his gospel. So the question begs to ask, what are we still doing in Mark, right? And I didn't scripture these verses 9 through 20. Look at it and see if there is something we can learn from it. Chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. 9 through 20. You read a, a book or a movie, and you don't like the ending, you either make up or you think about or you try to write something in that, well, this would make it a lot better. I do this a lot when I'm reading books to Addison. The book ends and it's kind of lame. I make up my own ending, that's better, right? Have you ever seen this on YouTube where you know a movie might end and a bunch of people don't like it, so they kind of concoct like, this better ending that they think it might be. I think this is what happens in the gospel according to Mark. seems like someone didn't like how Mark ended, and they added these extra verses. Because last week, as we said, the majority of scholars believe that Mark ended his gospel in verse 8. Now, while that might appear kind of strange to us, ending with fear and trembling, Mark wanted to demonstrate that when an individual meets and experiences the resurrection of Jesus Christ, They are awed by it. They are overwhelmed by a sense of wonder. This lines up, in fact, a lot with how Mark portrays people meeting the power and the work of God in Christ. So I think we should just leave Mark the way he ends it in verse 8. But if you're looking in your text, uh, some, some translations they have in brackets, right, In verses 9 through 20, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verse 9 through 20. So I thought we could just read that this morning. If you have your Bibles, open with me to Mark chapter 16. This is what we'll be looking at this morning, verses 9 through 20. It says, Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those whom he had risen those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Did I jump into verse 14? Sorry about that. I must not have coffeeed over into my iPad. I apologize. Here we go, verse nine. Now, now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons, she went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Verse 14. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into the whole world, all the world, and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and they will drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Sorry about that mix-up again. Verses 9 through 20. There it is. What do we do with those verses? Oddly enough, some of the Greek manuscripts end with verse 8. Others include these verses. So if we're looking at the external evidence, uh, it might be a little bit of a toss-up until we look deeper. Still, uh, what's even more confusing is other manuscripts after verse 8 include this phrase, which is called the, the second shorter ending. But they reported briefly to Peter and those with him all that they had been told. And after this, Jesus sent out by means of them from east to west, 
the sacred, the imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. After those verse and certain Greek manuscripts will continue with verses 9 through 20. Some of the oldest and most reliable manuscripts don't include these verses. Some of the early church fathers, such as Clement of Alexandria and Origen, did not even know about these verses. At the same time, there's others that do. Uh, for example, the, some of the early church fathers, like Arrhenius, around AD 50, knew about these verses. Later on, uh, other church fathers who would include in in translating the Bible, Eusebius and Jerome recorded that most of the Greek manuscripts available to them did not contain verses 9 through 20. So what, what about the internal evidence? What happens when we look at the text? And that helps us a lot more. Because as, as it started in verse 9, the Greek word now is a, it's a transition word that would seemingly transition verse 8 into verse 9. It doesn't do that. It ends with the women uh, leaving with fear and wonder, and then it goes on to describe Jesus appearing to Mary Magdalene. That's kind of an awkward transition that doesn't normally line up with how Mark normally transitions in his gospel. Secondly, the phrases and words that are included in verses 9 through 20 are not what scholars say Markin. They're not... They're not Phrases that Mark normally uses. The vocabulary, the grammar, the style are not consistent with the rest of Mark's writing. One scholar said that there were 18 words in verses 9 through 20 that are never used anywhere else by Mark. And the structure is completely different than the rest of the story. That phrase there, the Lord Jesus, in verse 19 is the only place in the whole gospel that phrase is used. So all of these factors to come together Scholars have concluded that this is not what Mark wrote. These were likely added to the scriptures at a later time. This account doesn't really offer new information. The rest of what Mark describes in here is found in other gospels like Matthew, Luke, Acts. Jay Brooks says it's virtually certain that Mark wrote nothing after verse 8. He did not write the longer ending. He did not write the short ending. So begs us the question, what do we do with them? What do we do with verses 9 through 20? Now, I love what the ESV Bible says. I love what the Gospel Transformation Bible says about this. If you don't own a a study Bible, I'd really encourage you to get one because with kind of uh, questions about the text or seemingly uh, this doesn't really make sense, study Bibles are invaluable. There's three Gospel Transformation Bibles on the counter here. If you need one, take one. I also have study Bibles in my office that I'd love to give you. But this is what the ESV study Bible says, which I I can't say it any better, so I thought I'd just read it. In summary, verses 9 through 20 should be read with caution. As in many translations, the editors of the ESV have placed this section within brackets, showing their doubts as to whether it was originally part of what Mark wrote, but also recognizing its long history of acceptance by many in the church. The content of verses 9 through 20 is best explained by reference to other passages in the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament. With particular reference to verse 18, there is no command to pick up serpents or drink deadly poison. This is merely a promise for protection as found in other parts of the New Testament. So I think we should be skeptical when we read these verses. We should be cautious. If they were written, if they were not written by Mark and added later, if they are unlikely a part of the original story, is there anything we can learn from them this morning? I think there is, and that's why I've decided to, to talk about it. <laughs> Dr. Hans Bayer says, though these verses were likely added description, the underlying message fits with what we see in Scripture. Our God will enable the followers of Christ to, to fulfill his purpose in their lives. What we see in, this, in these verses is that when people meet Jesus, they talk about him. They, they preach the gospel. They obey his commandments to go out and, and proclaim the good news to all people. They understand the purpose that God has placed in their life, and, and they do it. 
Jesus records in Matthew 5, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is the purpose that God has given. God's ultimate goal is his glory. That's why he does everything. This is why we exist. This is why he sends us. This is what the Bible records again and again. We do everything. 1 Peter 4.11, who serves as one who serves by the strength which God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. This is what Christ is commanding here. This is why I think these verses show that God will enable his followers to accomplish his purpose for their life. That he might be glorified. Now, real briefly, I will define how do do we glorify God? What does it mean to glorify God? I think it means that we love him above all things. We treasure him above all things. We enjoy him. We delight in him. This is, I think, is the reason that Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and the scribes so strongly. And we know the reason that they didn't glorify God is not because they did not know about him. Right? It, not, it doesn't just involve a head knowledge. Mark records earlier in, verse, in chapter 7, verse 6, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In other words, there's more to glorifying God than simply giving him lip service. I think there's more to glorifying God than just knowing about the scriptures. Jesus said in another gospel of John, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. And I think God is glorified not only by his glory being rejoiced in, by being enjoyed, by being savored, but also being shared. In other words, we glorify God not only by by loving him, by loving him with everything that we have, by rejoicing in him, by delighting in him, but out of that overflow, sharing the glory of God with those around us. That's how I think we can glorify God. And I think God has created and ordained that we should go out, that other worshipers of him, disciples, Christians who enjoy him, that God will use that to create other worshipers and have more glory be brought to himself. I believe these verses are a good reminder that tell us the truth that lines up with the rest, what we see in the rest of scriptures, that when someone meets Jesus, when they see the glory of God in him, they cannot stop talking about him. Now, although I think verses 9 through 20 are most likely added to Scripture, the messages of verse 16 and verse 20 specifically, that Jesus commissions his disciples and seen in the rest of the Scriptures. And that's what, I wanna, that's what I wanna camp out on this morning. That disciples are developed and deployed to be Jesus' witness. That's what I think we can learn from this passage. It lines up with whatever, what the rest of what we see this in, in our Scriptures in the Bible Matthew 28, after Jesus has risen and shows himself to his disciples, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. In John 20, 21, Jesus says, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Luke 24, after Jesus opens their minds to the scriptures, he says that you should go out and bring repentance for the forgiveness of sins that should be proclaimed to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. He then goes on in in his second account in Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, that Jesus states that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. I think what we see in Mark 9 through 20 lines up with, with that. Jesus develops and deploys his disciples. And we see this, this kind of unfold in in the book of Acts. That when 
a life is transformed by the gospel, they go and they preach the gospel to all people and, and lives are transformed and it's just like this multiplying movement that happens. Luke records the gospel being multiplied in the early church in Acts and how the word, the gospel spreads to the apostles and then more specifically in the latter half of, of the book of Acts, it follows the apostle Paul in his ministry, his church planting journey, how he would go from city to city preaching the gospel, appointing elders and then going on. I wanted to share a couple, a couple of small stories from the book of Acts that I think are, uh, that demonstrate this reality, that they could not stop talking about Jesus after they saw, after they experienced him, after he deployed them. Uh, if you have your Bibles, look at, at Acts chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 21. It's a great story. The apostles and the, and the disciples, they would go into the temple and they would preach, they would talk about Jesus. It says in verse 1, the priest and the captain of the temple, the Sadducees came to them, verse 2, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So they arrested them. They put them in custody until the next day, for it already evening. Verse 4, but many of them who had heard the word believed, and the number of men who came to it was about 5,000. So this thing is getting out of hand quick, right? If you're the scribes and the Pharisees, That's a pretty big revival, isn't it? Man, talk about creating problems for small groups, right? <laughs> Verse 5, On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, and Ananias, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John Alexander, who were the high priest family. Verse 7, When they had set them before the midst, they inquired, By what power, by what name do you do this? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people, he starts preaching, right? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that you rejected, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He preaches the gospel. And I love what, what Lee records of what the chief priests and the scribes, what's kind of going through the minds, what they're thinking. Verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing before them, they had nothing to say in opposition. When they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with this man? For that a noticeable sign has been forwarded through them as evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may not spread among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them to not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened him, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people for all were praising God for what had happened. There's another time where the chief priests and the scribes, they, they capture them again, they arrest them. They charge them, do not talk about Jesus. We strictly charge you, do not talk about Jesus. And Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. These men are bold. People are telling them, hey, stop talking about Jesus. Rulers, people that have, could have them killed, and they're saying, we will not. We are going to talk about Jesus. Luke records in Acts 5.42 that every day they're in the temple, they're going from house to house, proclaiming they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. 
And as you read through the book of Acts, you see that terrible things happen to the apostles. People really try to silence and stop what they're doing. People are stoned. People are killed. People are imprisoned and beaten. And that does not, nothing stops them from talking about Jesus. They go out and preach the gospel in different cities. They make disciples. They appoint elders in every church. They went on to the next city. Kind of the latter half of Acts records the, the ministry journey of Paul. And in Acts 20, verse 18 through 24, I think Paul gives us a challenge, especially when we think about the way we might think about retirement. He says in Acts 20, 18 through 24, he came to them and said, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with all tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what might happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. I love this, verse 24, Acts 20, 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I wonder how that differs from our view of retirement. That, in fact, the very last verse of Acts ends with Paul preaching the gospel. Acts 20, 28, 30. He lived there two years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. He lived out the teaching that he, that he taught the church in Corinth, saying that, Christians, disciples, we are God's ambassadors. God makes his appeal to others through us. Jesus has developed me and he has deployed me to go preach the gospel. And you would think in light of this passage, in light of, in, of Acts, the, the, brief, the brief little passage that I highlighted here, It's clear to me from the scriptures that Jesus develops and deploys his disciples to be his witness, and they do not stop in regards to persecution and trials and suffering. Their one aim, their one mission is to make Jesus known, to know him, to make him known. And as you just hear that, you think about that, you think about, the, you think about just, just Paul, for example, and those verses that I read, I think, wow, that was just one guy that Luke kind of describes his journey going on, just being sold out for the gospel. That Christians, that the church would be radical, wouldn't it? I mean, we'd, we'd always be sending people out to start new churches, to proclaim the gospel to unreached peoples. That we would be mobilizing people for the sake of the gospel. Right? I mean, you, you read the scripture and you would think that would be the case, wouldn't it? Am I wrong? I was recently in, invited by um, a, a couple church planters to, to take part of this cohort. It's some, some furthering training in church planting. It's going to be led by uh, kind of a mentor figure of mine, Dr. Andrew Arthur, who planted a church called The Hallows, who we did an apprenticeship with in 2015, I believe that was. And kind of in the introducing chapters of the training, this multiplied training, uh, talking about how uh, as churches, we can equip and, and send out planters and, and be churches that plant churches. I was kind of floored by this statistic. It said only 4% of American churches are reproducing churches. 4%. God has not called us to build empires unto ourselves, hoarding resources and experience, Christ commissioned his followers to go into all the world making disciples. Said, imagine if 
of families in America we're reproducing. This is the spiritual crisis that we're facing. This week I met, I met with another mentor, coach friend of mine named Tim Howe. Some of you guys know him. He's preached before uh, in our Sunday gathering. He told me another story that um, just of his ministry. He, he was a, a church, he pastored a church in the Bay Area, a town called Gilroy, for about seven years. And he said within his seven-year ministry, their church led about 150 people to Christ. I said, wow, Tim, that's amazing. 150 people to Christ in seven years. Praise God for that. But then he went on to describe kind of a little bit more of, of how that broke down. He said in those seven years, he was responsible for about 100. Tim personally. Wow, Tim, that's amazing. Man, God used you in such powerful ways. That's so cool. But he said in the seven years that he was pastoring that you know, these great numbers came to know Christ. Outside of himself, there was only five people in his whole church that led someone to Christ. And from the pulpit, in, in one of the best years they had, I think they had 30 people come to know Christ and 20, 20 baptisms. He, he stands up and he says, this has been a great year, guys. We've had 30 people come to know Christ. Everyone Shouts, cheers. Yeah, praise God. We've had 20 baptisms. People stand, cheer, clap. Yes, praise God. He says, I know personally, within, I can count on my one hand how many people outside of myself led someone to Christ. And he said, he, he was telling me he probably would do this differently because you know, he didn't say it the most graciously. He says, Either you guys aren't, it doesn't seem like you guys are sharing the gospel because you're not talking about it, you're not telling me, and other people aren't coming to know Christ. And he, he quoted a statistic, uh, a, a study, I don't know how recent it is, but uh, regardless, I thought it was uh, saddening. It was a Barna research study that said in American evangelicals, the percentage of people that lead someone to Christ outside of their family so a non-family member that they lead to Christ, the percentage of American evangelicals that does that is 3%. Even more sad, the statistic of pastors that led someone to Christ outside their family, less than 20%. And Tim told me he had, in his seven-year time, he had about 300 people total by the time he, by the time he left his church that he said there was probably only about 20 that really consistently shared their faith. Now you think about that, you think about those studies, you think about what we see in the scriptures, and to me, something doesn't line up. I know we're not all going to have the, we're not all gifted and called like the Apostle Paul was. We're not all going to have these huge numbers of people come to know Christ because of our faithful witness to the gospel but I do think it'd be more than 3%, right? I had a challenge to the members of the Mountain Churches this year to try to share the gospel 12 times in 2017. And even I was thinking about that, I thought, why, why did I limit myself? Tim and I talked for a while about, you know, what are some of the factors that go in these statistics? He says, you know, it's, it's a lot of complex issues. For a lot of people, they don't feel like they know the gospel well enough to share it or they think that the gospel is this kind of codified thing, like how Billy Graham, you know, this four-step thing that you have to master in order to share the gospel. That's what kind of we've made the gospel instead of just talking about Jesus and what he's done in your life. But I think if you have placed your faith in the gospel, you know enough of it to share it, right? You know what Jesus has done in your life, that how he's saved you, that you can share that. I think more tragically that we have been lulled to sleep by comforts, by success, by money, by careers, by traditions, so that Christ is not all satisfying to us and that we do not love him above all things. 
Because I think an individual who loves God, who knows that satisfaction, pleasure, comfort, rest, peace that come in Christ, and an individual who loves his fellow man, his neighbors, his family members, his co-workers, will try by every means possible to get them to experience the love of God in Christ as well. So how are we satisfied in Jesus? How are we fueled more by the love of Christ? Right now we're realizing, I'm thinking this myself, man, I can count on, maybe if I had two sets of hands, the amount of times I shared the gospel this year. And I, I, I can count, I, I can't even count the other things that I talk about, like how, how my daughter is the cutest thing in the world, Right? I think we need to do it. How do we experience God? How are we fueled by this love that it transforms us? I think we need to experience him daily. We need to behold his glory daily, frequently. We need to start our day, continue our day, end our day, fueled by God's glory and a passion to spread that everywhere we go. I know for a lot of times myself, though, I, I kind of like a second-hander. I don't experience the glory of God directly. I kind of, I kind of go through someone else, a, a pastor, a, uh, a podcast, a book. I don't necessarily come to God directly himself. That was, I, there's an illustration that I thought of that came to me as I was in Colorado because when I was in Colorado, there was just, and we were up in the Rockies. I was staying at the YMCA of Estes Park. Just amazing views. And of course, when you behold beauty and you're in nature like that, one of the first things you want to do is take pictures, right? At least I want to take pictures. I want to capture the beauty that I'm seeing. So you take out your phone. You see the mountains, the mountains, the 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 forest, the sun coming through. It's like, wow, this is amazing. I want to capture that. You go out, you take a picture. And you look at your phone, you're like, that's not the same thing. It doesn't even come close to capturing what I'm seeing. So then you try to take a panorama, right? This is what I'm doing. I'm taking a panorama. Okay, maybe if I just capture more of the scene, that'll better capture the beauty that I'm seeing. And I'm sending pictures to, to Stephanie and to Will and Man, this is amazing. And the pictures are great, but it's nothing like standing there and seeing the beauty of what I'm seeing. Now, maybe if you had a, you know, of, of course, if you have a better camera, better lenses, you can better capture the glory. But for myself, and I think for a lot of us, how we experience the glory of God is like looking at the iPhone picture. We're just getting a little taste. We're just getting a, a small glimpse, not knowing that we can put our phone down and just look out. This happens, I think, primarily through the Word. Are we people that are committed to the Word? All these statistics and studies that you show about Christians and their Bible reading and how illiterate we are in the Bible... You know, I think it's all related, right? Are we people of the word that are being satisfied in God early and often in the word? Do we know that we need God to love God? Are we being dependent and humble in asking for him to warm our hearts to him, to satisfy us in the morning in prayer? I think if you, I love sermons, I love listening to sermons, but if you're just coming each week on Sunday and you listen to a sermon, there's no kind of consistent reading in the word, there's not a, an intimate time of prayer with God, 
it's not going to transform you and motivate you to the degree that, that I think we, that it should. This is why some of the, the great prayers in the Bible found in the Psalms, they talk about our need for God to want God. Psalm 119.36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to getting gain. I need God to warm my heart to God when I wake him in the morning because the first thing I want to do is look at my phone, look at the news, do anything unspiritual, right? There's a resistance there. I need God. God, if, if you don't help me in this, if you don't help me love you and want you and incline my heart to you, I'm going to read your word and not be transformed by it. Psalm 119.36. Thanks, Steve. Psalm 119.18. Open my eyes that I might see wonderful things out of your word. Psalm 86.11. Unite my heart to fear your name. Psalm 90.14. Satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love. We must be experiencing God in his word and in prayer if we're going to be desiring him above all things, if we're going to be delighting in him. But also importantly, we also need those around us that are going to encourage us. They're going to spur us on. They're going to push us. They're going to not let us get sleepy and calloused. We need to be held accountable that's why we have gospel communities. That's why we've organized the church the way we have. We need each other. If there's one thing we can learn from the scribes and the Pharisees in, in the gospel according to Mark is that we need others to call us out. We need others to call out our blind spots the way sin can callous us. We need others to keep us humble and dependent and satisfied and teachable. We need others that are going to say, hey, Steve, I'm noticing every time I'm talking to you, you're, you're talking about cars. I say that, Steve, because I don't think we've ever had a conversation about cars. <laughs> <laughs> or Micah, I've noticed lately that all of our conversations have revolved around sports, how terrible your boss is, how you hate your job, etc. What are you believing? The challenge that I want us to think about and hear this morning is please do not hear me say that you need to do more. You need to serve more. You need to share the gospel more. You need to give more. You need to be more patient. You need to be more missional. That's not the challenge. The challenge is to believe that Jesus is better daily when we are tempted to believe that other things are better. The challenge is to be satisfied with God, to fight for contentment and satisfaction in him all the time. That's the challenge. That's my challenge. If Jesus is real, if he is precious, if what he says about himself and following him is true, if we love our friends, our community, our neighbors, our city, meaning we want what's best for them, we're committed to their good, we will do whatever it takes for them to hear about Jesus, to experience him, to know him, to follow him. And what we've seen throughout the gospel according to Mark is that they're, they're should be a sense of urgency in this. There should be a sense of immediacy. We cannot wait to follow Jesus. We have to listen to him and do so immediately. So I thought I'd end this morning by looking at, well, what are some ways that we can best do this? Best multiply the gospel. Best share the gospel. Best show the difference the gospel makes. Let's focus, maybe focus specifically on Des Moines. Let's say there's about 30,000 people in Des Moines. And not all 30,000 people are in churches. I, I know and, and pray with other pastors in Des Moines, and I know that the majority of churches in Des Moines are either plateaued or they're declining. And majority of them are not over 200. In other words, there's a lot of room to go around, right? The church in Des Moines has a lot of work to do. 
One of the things that, that I've noticed just in my brief time being in Des Moines is that Des Moines is a challenging place. The kind of sleepy town, the suburbia, people stay kind of very isolated to themselves, right? There's not like large, there's not like places in Des Moines where large groups of people gather outside of the summer and the, the market and the concerts in the park. It's challenging. It's a challenge because the majority of people who live in Des Moines don't work in Des Moines. The challenge is we need to meet people where they gather. And the biggest place that people gather in Des Moines is in their house, right? People like to say very secluded, very isolated. I think the summer presented great opportunities for us where there was large groups of people at the market, you know, at the concerts in the park. But now what do we do in this season? Where it's rainy, it's dark. It's dark by 6.30. Pretty soon it's going to be dark by 4.30, you know? <laughs> I think in order to saturate Des Moines with the gospel, we need disciples who view their homes not as secluded sanctuaries of solitude and security. We need disciples who view their homes as the primary place where ministry and the gospel can be witnessed. It means that we must be active in our neighborhoods, inviting neighbors into our homes, throwing parties, having open houses. We kind of dabbled our foot in the water with this this summer. Some families with their gospel community threw parties, and it was was awesome. I was I was actually genuinely surprised, kind of the how people were kind of open and receptive to that. Will and Kelly had one. Uh, Kaylee and Cameron had one. We had one at our house. The Schlouds had one. Uh, am I missing anyone else? Peter and Caroline had one. St. George's had one. We had one at uh, the apartment complex. What are some ways that we can think through how to continue having neighbors into our house? What about open houses? What about what can we do with Halloween? Could we set up stations in, in front of houses of, of neighborhoods where we know there's going to be a lot of trick-or-treaters and give out the biggest, best candy bars? What about Thanksgiving? How can we open up our homes to have neighbors and, and people in our life in, in Thanksgiving? I just want to say, if, if, if money is an issue for you and, and you cannot do these certain things because of budget, the church has budgeted money that we can give you to throw parties. Don't let that stop you. Where else do people gather in Des Moines? Restaurants, right? What if we picked a couple strategic restaurants and became regulars there? Even if we didn't like the food as much, right? Like if there's a better restaurant in Burien or in West Seattle, but we wanted to be in Des Moines to be a witness, that's something I need to work on. My, my favorite burger place is in West Seattle. Yeah. Some of you guys have, have done a great job at becoming regulars, knowing waiters and waitresses. I know there's many of you who do this, but one person I would encourage you to talk to is Carrie. I'm going to rag on him. I, and this is probably just because I have Carrie and I hang out, so I, I know a little bit more about what he does. I don't want to say that you guys are not doing this in restaurants. But the second time Carrie was at Via Marina, he, was, he had the, wait, the waiter's name, and he was inviting him to the gathering. He gave him a card. He was talking about the church. That's awesome. Where else do people in Des Moines gather? What about moms groups? If you're not familiar with it, there's this, kind of weird to me, but there's this group on Facebook called Real Housewives of Des Moines. <laughs> they put together events. They're open. Stephanie started a group last year that uh, Kelly and Megan have uh, kind of transitioned and, and led called the Des Moines Moms Group. 
It's moms in Des Moines that are getting together that you can be in relationship with. Other things, uh, there's tot time. Now, the majority of people that go to tot time are from the mountain church, right? I, I went there a couple times and it was pretty cool. It's like our whole church was there. But there are also people from the community that go. People in Des Moines also play sports, don't they? Soccer's pretty big. What if instead of sending our kids to sports because we just wanted them to have an activity or sports is kind of an idol in our life that we want to continue to worship, what if we use it as a tool for witness? What if we use it as a way to meet new people? I'm just trying to think with you guys about where where people gather and how can we meet them and and get the gospel to them? Grocery stores. What if we came like, okay, Tuesday night, 4.30, I'm always going to go to Safeway because I know I'm probably going to have the same checker. I'm going to go to his line, even if it's longer, and try to build a relationship with him. What about people we go to the gym with? How can we better serve one another and hold each other accountable in gospel communities. This is a distant idea I have. It might be crazy. Um, what if we had gospel communities come together and let's say 10 gather and they decide we're going to send two out to go to All Star, to go to Yard Arm, to go to some sort of restaurant or bar to try to share the gospel. And as those people are out, we're praying for them. God, open up, open up doors for them to share the gospel. Soften hearts so that they can go and share the gospel and people can kind of know Jesus. Wouldn't that be awesome? What if gospel communities came together and were more intentional about praying together and walking around Des Moines? Again, these are just all ideas. But I, I think we need to be thinking about where do people gather in Des Moines, where can we meet them, and how can we get the gospel to them? One of the things I want to do now as we, as we close and as we're thinking about this is write out where God has sent you. List out neighbors, list out coworkers, list out the things, maybe you know a checker or maybe you have a, a certain grocery store that you like to go to. Write out a list and take it to your gospel community leader, take it to someone in your gospel community and say, hold me accountable to these people. God has sent me to be a witness to these people. I don't want to relent on this. I don't want to get calloused. I don't want to get sleepy. I don't want to get distracted from where God has sent me and what he is doing. I pray right now that the Spirit is impressing upon you ways to get the gospel out to be his witness, and I pray that you will be obedient to Jesus' commands and the leading of the Holy Spirit as we do this. Disciples are developed and deployed to be his witness. So, now I can say we're done with Mark, right? (laughs) So you disagree with anything that I said uh, or you have questions about what does it mean to be as a witness, I'd love to talk with you about that. What does it mean? I'd really encourage you this week and this next couple weeks to read through the book of Acts and see what God does. It's an awesome book. What I want to do now as we, as we close is uh, just have a time of prayer. So we can pray for each other, pray for our community, pray for our city, pray for ourselves, that we would, that we'd love God and be satisfied in him, and that would compel us to go out. I pray now that, that if, you, if you are someone who maybe thinks that you're a disciple or would call yourself a Christian, but you've would never have a desire to talk about Jesus or don't really desire him, I would encourage you to pray that the Holy Spirit would, would break down your heart, it would open up your heart to love him and to be satisfied in him. 
watched a convicting video just last night from a guy named David Platt who said the reason that so many disciples do not make disciples is that they are in fact weren't disciples in the first place. I don't want us to be a deceived church. I don't want us to be a deceived people. I want us to be love, love God wholeheartedly and seek to do by all means possible get the gospel out and share that love that we have experienced in Christ. Let's pray. Father, forgive me for being, becoming callous and wandering. Forgive me for getting more excited about natural things and spiritual things. Forgive me, Father, for getting wrapped up in my own head, my own plans, my own agenda, not being open to opportunities that you have placed around me. Forgive me for being scared to share the gospel. Forgive me for being passive. Father, I ask now that you would, you would do a mighty work by your Holy Spirit, that you would equip and encourage the mountain church to be your witness, that by your Holy Spirit you would embolden us, that you would allow us to, to live lives of holiness, to live lives in which you are our sole passion and focus, lives in which we are just consumed with you, knowing you, making you known. Father, I do ask that your gospel would be magnified and multiplied through the mountain church. Father, I ask that you would do a great work in Des Moines in the church, that you would do a great work in Burien, in Federal Way, in Kent, in Normandy Park. Father, that you would unite the church together, that you would be with the saints of Normandy Christian, that you'd be with the saints of Des Moines Gospel Chapel, that you would be with the saints of Jesus Christ, salt and light, that you would be with the saints of the church in Des Moines to be your witness, that many people would come to know you through us, through us being ambassadors, you have equipped us and called us and prepared for us. Lord, we want to see many people come to know you. We want to see lives transformed by the gospel. We want to see broken lives healed. We want to see hope and life and peace restored to people in you. And Father, please hear our prayers and, and come be with us. Empower us. Send us out, Father. Satisfy us. May we be a people who love your word, who are grounded in your word, who are fueled by your word. May we be a people who are excited about Jesus. As we go to restaurants, as we go to grocery stores, as we go into our co, into our workplace, that we would be so satisfied in you, so delighted in you that it would just overflow. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, who does not experience the joy, the satisfaction, the peace that comes from knowing you, would you call them? Would you save them? Would you regenerate them by the power of your Holy Spirit to love you above all things? Father, I ask now that you would be glorified as we sing to you, as we remember your life, death, and resurrection to communion, and as we go out to be the people that you've called us to be, to be your ambassadors for your glory. Amen.